Well, we are yep, continuing the series on Acts. We actually just have one left after this morning. So I believe Tim Miller is up next week, and that will wrap up our series on Acts. We've just been looking at the book of Acts this fall, trying to understand as a church body, what does it mean for Bethany Church to be on mission together and seeing how the early church did mission. So we're going to, uh, yeah, this morning, it's great that uh, the message is about imprisoned, Paul being imprisoned, and we have the ministry set up to get books out to people who are imprisoned right now. Uh, my title this morning is going to be Imprisoned, A Clear Conscience for the Mission. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to get into the book of Acts here. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would come and unfold your words to us, that you'd give us light. We pray that you'd put in our hearts a, a yes to you, Lord, this morning, that just cause us to be open for whatever you want to do in us this morning. We ask that this morning would cause good fruit to come forth from this congregation for your glory. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. So we're, we're in Acts 24 through 26 this morning. Uh, kind of just carrying on where Chris preached last week where Paul was arrested. So just kind of the background, Paul had been, been traveling around, but he had been gathering up uh, an offering to take to the church in Jerusalem. And so he had been traveling around, you know, starting churches, strengthening churches, but he had been going around asking for, for them to give for relief for people in Jerusalem, for the church in Jerusalem. So now he, he's gone to Jerusalem, and the Jewish leaders there have, have stirred up the crowds against Paul. They don't like what he's teaching about Jesus, dying and rising from the dead. So they've arrested Paul. And now we're kind of at that, that phase where he's, he's been arrested, and the Jewish people were trying to, trying to ambush him with a plot to kill him, and so he was ushered out of there, and now he's at, he's at Caesarea, he's being held, and the governor doesn't really know what to do with Paul here. So that's where we're at in Acts 24. We have some interesting characters here in Acts 24. We have, we have Felix, who is the governor, who basically is in the position of Pontius Pilate when Jesus was crucified. Uh, now Felix is in that position, and he's the leader we see at the start of the story, Acts 24, and then Festus takes over for him in Acts 25. Then we see Herod Agrippa II coming in, Acts 25-26, who, uh, who follows up after the previous Herod was killed in Acts chapter 12 because he didn't give, give glory to God when people were proclaiming, oh, the voice of a God and not a man, and he didn't honor God, and so he was killed by God and eaten up by worms. So we have his successor, Herod Agrippa II, which I believe is the last of the Herods, actually, to rule. So some interesting characters in the story here. I'm going to start reading in Acts 24. And after five, five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. So Tertullus is kind of like the, the prosecuting attorney here. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, which is really funny because Felix is actually known for being a, a tyrant of a ruler who caused tons of bloodshed um, and was removed because of the terrible job he did after a couple of years. Through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. 
But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, this man being the Apostle Paul, who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him, you, you yourself will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. So one of the big tensions here is, is Christianity just part of the, the Jewish faith, or is it separate? And Paul's saying, this is just a continuation of the Jewish faith, and the Roman Empire has always has had this um, allowance for the Jewish people to practice their faith, and I'm just within that vein, whereas the Jewish people are like, no, he is not connected with us. We have nothing to do with this man. This is a different sect of religion. He is not a, a practicer of the Jewish faith. He should not come under that allowance of how we can freely practice our faith. That according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nations and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So again, he's just saying, I'm just acting like a typical Jew, and they can testify to that. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So he's on this kind of arrest where he, he's, he's not completely free, but he can, he can meet with friends, they can bring stuff to him. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So Felix obviously did not like the conviction that was coming on his heart from Paul's speaking, and he wanted him to get away. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. Maybe I can get a little bribe here. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded, 
succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So Paul just remains in prison during this time, not really for any good reason. They, they haven't come up with any good reason, but they don't want the people of Jerusalem to stir up and riot because of what's going on. Like one of the main things these Roman governors are trying to do, and this, you saw the same thing with Pontius Pilate, was just to keep the peace so that people weren't rioting. So just in order, they're afraid of the Jewish people getting all angry if he lets Paul go. So even though there's no real good reason for Paul to be imprisoned, he's left there. Then we, we move on to the story of Festus, and Festus examines Paul. Well, Festus first goes down to Jerusalem in Acts 25, and it's two years later, but the Jewish people haven't forgotten about Paul. They still really want to get rid of Paul. So Festus talks to them, and they're like, bring him here and let's get him on trial. And Festus is like, no, you come down to Caesarea and we'll, we'll continue the trial there. When I go back there, you come with me and you can examine him. So that's what's going on in Acts 25. Picking it up in Acts uh, 25, about 10. Um, Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then, then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. So he's kind of making use of this right he has as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar because I think he knows that he's not going to get a fair trial among the Jewish people. And not only that, they're waiting to kill him. So he doesn't just, you know, rush headlong into martyrdom. He, he's wanting to fulfill the ministry the Lord has for him. And Jesus had told Paul, he had spoken to him in Acts 23, saying, I'm sending you to Rome, basically. So Paul's just trying to go along with that so that the gospel can go out from Rome, the biggest city in the known world at the time. So he's, he's appealing to Caesar, and Festus is, Festus is like, okay, he's appealing to Caesar. We'll send him to Caesar. And then he's like, I don't know what to say when I send him because he hasn't really been proved guilty of anything, so I don't know what to do. So he's, he talks to Herod Agrippa, and he's like, hey, will you help me to know what to, what to say, what to write as I send him off to Caesar to, to trial? Because I don't, I don't really know what to say about him. So then Paul testifies before Herod Agrippa in Acts 26. He kind of recounts his whole story of how Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. And we're just going to pick it up a little bit there, Acts 26, where he's telling the story. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against, kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes. This is just a glorious picture of what it means to be called as a witness to Christ. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul goes on to, to try to persuade Herod Agrippa here do you believe the prophets? I know you believe the prophets, Herod. And he's like, in such a short time, would you persuade even me to be a Christian? And Paul's like, short or long, I wish that everyone would become like I am, except for these chains that bound me right now. 
So that's where we leave off in Acts 26. So Paul's basically now just on a course where he's being sent on his way to Rome. And that's where the book of Acts will end while he's, he's making his way towards Rome. So I just want to talk briefly about Paul's imprisonment and then just mention, uh, mostly spend our time on something that was just striking me about Paul's story here. And that is his, his earnest desire to walk with God with a clear conscience. So Paul's in this place of imprisonment right now. And just to know, there had been a couple of failed ambushes on Paul. And that just, that just goes to remind us that no matter how much hostility there is against us, nothing will happen unless God allows it to happen. God was not done with Paul's ministry yet. And so multiple attempts for his life to be taken were, just, were thwarted because it wasn't, it wasn't his time yet. And I just want to encourage us that if it's not our time yet, no matter how much hostility is against us, we can continue our ministry. We can continue to press forward with what God's called us to do because nothing's going to happen to us until God allows it to happen. Also, Paul being chained doesn't mean that his ministry has stopped or that the word of God has stopped. I love this in 2 Timothy 2.9 where he says, I'm bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. And in Philippians 1.14, he says, Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So you see that God's purposes are coming to, coming to pass even through Paul's imprisonment. Even though he's in chains, he's encouraging others. And again, maybe you're stuck in a season where you don't feel like you're free to do the ministry that you want to do. Maybe it's a sickness. Maybe... Maybe at some point you will be imprisoned. I don't know. But the point is, when you feel stuck, you can still be an encouragement that God's going to cause his will to come to pass by your example to others. So one thing I wanted to focus on here that just struck me in Acts 24, 14, is 24, 14 to 16. I'm just going to read that again. But, as this I can, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men, these Jewish people, these Pharisees, they accept this, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And I just, that struck me because he's said this multiple times. When Chris gave his message last week, he talked at the beginning of Acts 23, where, where Paul is testifying before Ananias, the high priest, and he says, he says, I've lived my life with a clear conscience before God, and the high priest orders him to be smacked, and he responds, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, and we talked about that briefly last week, but it was just interesting to me, why does Paul keep saying how he strives to have a clear conscience? Like, what's the big deal about his conscience? It's like, it doesn't, it's not something we talk about a whole lot. I don't, I don't hear a lot of people talking about conscience around me, but, but to Paul, it was a big deal. So I'm going to focus just on the idea of what does it mean? Why did he, why did he work so hard to have a clear conscience before God? Why do, does that matter for us? What does that have to do with being on mission for, for God's purpose in the world? So why does he keep talking about his conscience? It's not only in Acts, too, like 2 Corinthians 1.12 for our boast is this, Paul writes, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and, simply, and supremely so toward you. 
So what is the conscience he keeps talking about? Uh, one definition I came across is, the, is it's just our, our consciousness, our, like our awareness of what we believe is right and wrong. And I think kind of honing in more on the idea of a Christian conscience, it's just kind of that, that internal sense of what God would have us do, that internal testimony to what, to what God would say is right and wrong, something, something God has placed in each one of us. What does it look like to have a bad conscience to start with? Paul, Paul's working so hard to have a good conscience. And I thought this was interesting because right as I felt like the Lord was leading me to, um, to focus on Paul's talk about his conscience, the, uh, on Wednesday night at sword training, one of the kids asked about a story in the Bible, and I was like struck because it was like, oh, this is really about having a bad conscience, this story. And I felt like Okay, it was a confirmation that God was just leading me in this direction here. Because one of the kids Wednesday night asked, what's the deal with that story where the lady asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter in the Gospels? It's like, yeah, <laughs> that's quite the story, huh? I mean, like she can, she's told by Herod she can ask for anything. I'll give you whatever you wish up to half my kingdom. And this young girl says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Hmm. Not what I would pick. But it's just, it's just... I think uh, a clear picture of how terrible it is to have a bad conscience, right? Herodias had married Herod, and John had been saying, you're not supposed to be married because she was your brother's wife. And so this, it's this illegitimate marriage, and John's reminding them, this, isn't, this is not according to God's law. This is not right for you to be married to her. And they just, him speaking just awoke their conscience, and they wanted to get rid of that. Stop saying that. I don't want to feel bad about this. So it's so bad that they're willing to chop off John's head, even though a lot of people hold him to be a prophet, just, just so their conscience can stop bugging them. That's how terrible it is to have a bad conscience. The story of Thomas Cranmer um, from about 1600s, he was around during the time of the, the Reformation. So the Reformation's going on with Martin Luther in Germany, and then England also is kind of having a Reformation, and they're trying to figure out what to do, and they're trying to figure out what their relationship should be with the Roman Catholic Church in England. And you have King Henry VIII at this time, and he's trying to split with the Roman Catholic Church uh, a lot because he wants to be divorced from his wife, Catherine of Argonne, and Mary Anne Boleyn. And so he's, he's got this whole thing going on where he's like, I'm going to be in charge of the Church of England, and we're going to be free from the Roman Catholic Church. And so he enlists this guy, Thomas Cranmer, to, to kind of help him to be free from the, from the Roman Catholic Church and kind of establish their own Church of England. And so all this is going on. So Thomas Cranmer during this time is kind of learning more about what they're teaching with, with the Reformation, with the doctrine of justification by faith, with learning to lean on the scriptures alone and not church authority, all this stuff. So he's, he's talking with all these people. He's starting to agree with these thoughts of the Reformation. And so he kind of helps uh, uh, King Henry VIII for a while. Uh, but then things don't go so well. Uh, Henry VIII dies. Eventually, Henry's daughter Mary comes to power, Queen Mary, known as Bloody Mary. And she comes to power, and she wants to go back to the Roman Catholic Church. And so she's kind of rounding up all, all the Protestants, all those who are sympathetic to, to the Protestant thinking, all those who are sympathetic to the thoughts of like Martin Luther and William Tyndale. She's rounding them up, 
imprisoning them, killing them. So one of them is Thomas Cranmer. And he's imprisoned for a while, and he's sentenced to death. And during his time in imprisonment, he, he signs something saying he, he rejects the Protestant teaching that he had been, that he had been teaching. And so he's, he's going to be killed. And basically the last thing before he's killed, because Bloody Mary, Queen Mary, wants the people not only to see that these people are being killed, but she wants them to see that they're rejecting the teaching that they were passing on. So she, her, the last thing is for Thomas Cramer to have a public recant, recant, recantation of the Protestant teaching. So he shocks her and says, I don't recant of that teaching. I believe it. And so she sentences him to be burned. And what he does is he, he sticks his hand into the fire first and says, this hand needs to be burned first because I signed that thing saying I recant before. And then he went into the fire. And you just see that, 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 that power of the, the conscience that just, oh, I want to get rid of this. Burn that hand that was unfaithful to the Lord. And just, so just the power of a bad conscience, the power of a good conscience. What is a, what is a good? Because a bad conscience just gnaws at you. It just burns at you, pricks at you. And it's just, God put it in all of us to lead us to him. And when, when it's not aligned right, things don't go right. What does a good conscience look like? Well, it looks like Paul being imprisoned because he had complete joy and boldness and peace during his imprisonment. He wasn't, he wasn't a turmoil within himself, even though there was turmoil all around him. He had peace with God. He had fellowship with God. You know, in Acts 16, he's singing in the prison, leading a bunch of people to the Lord. We see him preaching to Felix. We see him preaching to Herod Agrippa. He's, he's just free even though he's imprisoned. That's what a good conscience looks like. It also reminds me of, of the story of John Bunyan, also kind of near the time of Thomas Cranmer, but not willing to conform to the, to the official church. And they tell him, you can't, you can't keep preaching. He's the one who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And, and we can't, you can't keep preaching unless you're licensed within the official church. And he's like, I, I can't conform to some of the things they teach. And he can't stop preaching. So he goes to prison for 12 years. All he had to do was say, I'll stop preaching. You can still be a Christian, John. You can still worship Jesus. You can still read your Bible. You can still share it with your family. But you can't go preaching. But he knew that would be against his conscience to disobey that call of God on his life. So he went to prison for 12 years. He went back again later, too, just for about a year. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't easy. He had, he had a family to take care of. He had his wife, his previous wife had died, so his new wife, uh, just shortly before his imprisonment, she had to take care of all his children from his previous marriage, so a really hard situation for her. One of them was blind. He said it felt like not being with them felt like the flesh being pulled off my bones. That was how hard for me. He tried to provide for them from prison. All that to say, it wasn't an easy imprisonment, even so. He had joy and peace in prison because he had a clear conscience with God. He writes this, I never had in all my life so great an inlet into the word of God as now. Those scriptures that I saw nothing in before are made in this place and state to shine upon me. Jesus Christ also was never more real and apparent than now. Here I have seen him and felt him indeed. I've had sweet sights of the forgiveness of sins in this place and of my being with Jesus in another world. In his prison meditations, he writes, the prison, very sweet to me, hath been since I came here. And so would also hanging beer, 
so also would hanging be if God would there appear. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if I'm in prison. Doesn't matter if I'm hanging. It doesn't matter if I'm in a comfortable home. What matters is if I have fellowship with God, in other words. And you don't have that fellowship with God that you want when your conscience is, is messed up. And so that's why Paul took great pains to have a clear conscience before God. Also, I've got a lot of historical references in this message because I'm just reminded of, of ways people walk this out. I remember um, reading about Hudson Taylor, who was a missionary to China, and he started the China Inland Mission. But when his wife was dying, just this moving conversation between the two of them, where she's kind of feverish, and she's actually kind of feeling good at the moment, but he's trying to tell her she's dying. He's like, I think you're dying. And she's like, really? Do you think so? And he's like, he's like yeah. And then she starts to get sad, and he's like, are you, are you sad to go be with the Lord? And she says, oh, no, it's not that. You know, darling, that for 10 years past, there has not been a cloud between me and my Savior. I cannot be sorry to go to him, but it does grieve me to leave you alone at such a time, yet he will be with you and meet all your need. And that just, that just caused me to yearn when I read that. There's not been a cloud between me and my Savior for 10 years. That's the testimony of someone who kept their conscience clear before the Lord and had an unbroken fellowship with him. Obviously, it doesn't mean she was perfect, but she could say there hasn't been a cloud between me and my Savior. And that's, that's just my hope that, that having care for our consciences, we can say that there's not a cloud between me and my Savior, so I, I have joy, I have boldness, no matter what the circumstances are in this time of my life. I think it's summed up well in, in Proverbs 28.1 that says, the wicked flee when no one pursues. The wicked flee when no one pursues. Why would the wicked flee when no one's pursuing? This is because of guilt within them, I feel like. Because they're, they're not at peace. They don't have fellowship with God. They know there's guilt upon their heart. No one's pursuing them and they're fleeing. There's nothing internal in them that's at peace. But on the other hand, the righteous are as bold as a lion. The righteous are as bold as a lion. And that's, that's why I think having a clear conscience matters for the mission. Because the righteous are as bold as a lion. They're not fleeing when no one pursues. And there's many examples of this throughout the history of the church. There's many examples of this in our Bible. You read about Daniel's boldness. You read about Paul's. You read about the apostle John writing the book of Revelation, their, their boldness for the mission. You read about it in the, throughout the history of the church as we've been looking at a little. There's so many stories. You got people like, like the Anabaptists being drowned because they believed in being baptized as believers. So People in charge were like, oh, you want to be baptized again? Okay, we'll drown you. All you have to do is baptize your babies, and you're, you can worship God. You can be a Christian. Just don't be baptized as adults. But they knew that that would compromise their conscience with the Lord. Or, or first century Christians, all you have to do is say Caesar is Lord, burn a little incense to him, then you can go on being a Christian. You can say Christ is Lord also. Just say Caesar is Lord. They wouldn't do it. They weren't going to compromise their conscience. What does it mean for us? It could mean, could mean losing friends. It could be, mean breaking off a relationship. It could mean losing a job. But in all those things, what it will mean is you'll have that grace to have an unbroken fellowship with the Lord when you do what he wants. Uh, for me, yesterday, I was, I was driving home from playing basketball with my kids, and I was getting in the left lane to turn onto the highway, and on the highway coming off the other way, there was a homeless man. 
And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm going the other way. That just doesn't work. And this is like, my kids literally made homeless kits yesterday at school. I have one right behind me. And here I, I'm, here I'm just because I have to like turn around and like, and I was like really close to not doing it, which is, which is just dumb. Like I have this, this freshly made homeless kit. Like I can be more prepared and I'm not in a hurry. But oh no, I'm not in that lane, so I have to go on the highway and go back around. And I was just like, yeah, and what am I preaching on tomorrow? I was like, hmm. So, and it shouldn't take that, right? It shouldn't take that. But I, but I just know in that moment that if I don't do it, then it's going to bug me for the next few hours. Whereas if I do it, there's not going to be that hindrance between me and my fellowship with the Lord. Like, yes, God washes away all our sins. I get that. But, but to have to deal with that and work through that, as opposed to just saying yes to him and having that continual unbroken fellowship is so worth little inconveniences, like me turning the car and driving a couple extra minutes, even when I have plenty of time. It's stupid that it took that for me. So my hope is that there's just that we come to a place where we're, we're walking with God, that there's no clouds between us and our Savior, that I just think of how it says in Genesis that Enoch walked with God and he was no more. He just, that's all it says about him. He walked with God and he was no more. God took him. He just walked with God. Like what, that's, that's just what I want. I want to walk with God. You know, I don't know much about him, but it seems like he had a great fellowship with the Lord. So in application, what, what do we do to walk with, walk with the Lord with a good conscience? First, First is just let Jesus sprinkle you clean with his blood. That's what it says in Hebrews 10. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus' blood can take care of every issue of guilt on your soul, on your conscience, whether it's for the first time or in an ongoing way. If you've never experienced the forgiveness that comes by coming to Jesus and having what he did on the cross wash away your sins, I invite you to do that now. His blood right now can take care of all your sins. His blood takes away the sin of the world. He can handle your sins. And I think, you know, when Jesus is in the upper room in John 13 and he's washing his disciples' feet and he's talking about, you know, you're clean, but I just need to wash your feet. And there's that exchange between him and Peter. I think that's just to say, there's the one-time washing where you become one of mine. And then there's ongoing stuff that kind of the, the stuff that gets on your feet, the stuff that gets on you from your day-to-day walk that continually come to me for cleansing. Continually come to Jesus to sprinkle you clean. Just come to Jesus, whether it's for the first time or in an ongoing way, and he'll sprinkle you clean. Ask God to examine and search you. Just ask God, like, just, Lord, just, what, is there anything in my life that would, that would cause there to be clouds between me and you, that, that would cause that fellowship between me and you to be broken? Any ways where I'm going against what you're saying to me, just ask him. Search you. Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Just, just go before the Lord and just make yourself open to his His beautiful eyes that are a flame of fire that can search down to the deepest part of you and ask him to search you. Also, inform your conscience with Scripture. We need to be in God's Word because sometimes our consciences are are wrong, right? Like like Peter, we see an example of that in Acts 10 where, where the animals are coming down and the Lord's like, Peter, get up, kill and eat. And he's like, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean, right? And he, his conscience needs to be realigned. Like our conscience isn't always perfectly aligned with God and his word and his will. So we need to keep going to God. We keep, need, need to keep going to his word and having it informed. Because maybe it's, something, maybe it's something that someone in the church taught you, but it wasn't from God. 
right? There's a lot of commands that are clear in the Bible that there's not room for, you know, not room like, yeah, I, I think this other woman's more attractive. I should maybe marry her instead of my wife. Like, you don't need, you don't need any uh, seeking the Lord about that. That's wrong from the Bible. There's no gray area there, okay? But there's other areas where you've maybe picked up something from someone else in church, but it's not something where God says clearly one way or the other in the Bible. So sometimes we just need to continue to have our consciences realigned by God's word and by what God's putting on our heart. So inform your conscience. Inform it with scripture and with fellowship with the Lord. Um, Don't hold others to follow your conscience. Because that's, again, this is one of the areas where a lot of times we have we have problems because maybe God said something was wrong for us and so therefore we judge someone else for doing that thing but God didn't say it was wrong for them. Whether it's having a drink of alcohol or, you know, use of their computer, what kind of movies you watch or I'm sure you can think of all kinds of things but the Lord is the Lord of each person's conscience and don't try to make your conscience the Lord of someone else. The Bible needs to be in charge of all of us but on questionable matters, your conscience isn't Lord. It is for you. It's not for the other person. So walk with one another in love. And also just, I feel like part of this for me, I know, is just continually walking with the Lord, continually inviting him into every aspect of my life, like doing everything before his eyes so that there's not part of my life that is sectioned off from God. Like, of course he's always seen, but am I, but am I living in a way that I'm aware of his gaze upon me? So just that idea, like David said in Psalm 16, I, put the, I set the Lord always before me because he is my right, at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And just that idea that we're always living before God's gaze and just to be aware of that and invite him into everything and talk to him about everything. Whether it's work, even if you have a job, like, like when I'm coding for software development, and I just try, Lord, help me with this problem. Just like trying to, I don't do it that often because a lot of times I'm just concentrating, but I try to do it. Just inviting God into everything because I feel like if you're constantly walking before his eyes, that you're less likely to just, to go against him in the little things when you, when you know his gaze is upon you. But it's when, it's when you've kind of closed him off to a certain part of your life. And I feel like that's when you're going to make those little compromises. And when I say always walking before God's gaze, also the worship team can come up as I close here. But as I say always walking before his gaze, I don't mean like in an oppressive way where like he's just like, don't mess up, don't mess up. Like if you feel that way, then, then we need to really get at the heart of God. Like he's so gracious and compassionate. He's a father who loves you. He, that's why Jesus said, come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He's not a God who's just like, oh, don't mess up. When I say walking for his gaze, he's a good shepherd. He's a loving father. He just, he delights to, to walk with you through everything. He's not looking to just point out your flaws. And so if that's the idea you have, or if, if this idea of, of having a good conscience before him leads you like paralyzed, afraid to do anything because you might mess up, that's not his heart. Yeah, we're going to make mistakes. But just as much as we can, saying yes to God day to day so that we can walk with him in unhindered fellowship. When you know what you should do, do it. And then you'll just be able to walk with that joy and boldness. Remember that there's going to be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. And we're going to see him face to face. That was what kept Paul taking pains to walk before God with a good conscience. We're going to see him face to face. The earth and the sky and the heavens are going to flee away from his presence and we'll be there looking at him. And we're going to want to say, 
We're going to just ask now, Lord, help me to live now in the way I will want to have lived when I see you in that day. Because Paul lived before God's eyes, and Paul lived with that day in mind, and that's why he took pains to walk before God with a good conscience. And when we do that, then we can walk with that joy and boldness. We'll be as bold as a lion with no clouds between us and our Savior. And that's my hope for us this morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we just pray for insight. We pray for revelation. We pray for your guidance, your shepherding on us, Lord, because conscience can be a tricky thing. But we just want to walk before you with a good conscience so that we're bold, so that we place fellowship with you above all things. So we pray for that grace upon our hearts, that grace upon our lives to walk in that way, so that we would be bold and joyful and walking with you for the sake of the mission. We ask this in Jesus' name. As we uh, start to worship, I just want to invite people along the sides if you can pray. Uh, if I, some of the people I've talked to beforehand, if you're willing to come pray for people. I just invite you, if you want to get prayer for anything we talked about this morning or any other need that you have in your life, I just invite you to get prayer this morning. Let's sing this last song.